this hour of the Sunrise Morning Show with a prayer to share our faith with others. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord Jesus, you manifested yourself to the world when you lived among human beings in the days of your earthly life. Today, it is only through your members, such as myself, that you were manifested to the world. Help me to realize that we live in what has aptly been termed a global village, where all feel the need to share their experiences and enrich one another. In such a world, let me regard your truth not as something to be hoarded, but as something to be shared with others by my actions as well as my words. Help me to share my faith with all whom I encounter, not ostentatiously, but quietly, not with pride, but with humility, not out of fear, but out of love, not to overwhelm them, but to inspire them, and not for my gain, but for your glory. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Good morning, and welcome to this special edition, the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell, and alongside Matt Swain, we head to the archives today to share with you some of our favorite interviews of the past. Hope you can stick around and enjoy the entire hour ahead. We'll get started right now at two minutes past the hour. Back with us now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Dr. Abigail Favale. She's with the McGrath Institute for Church Life at Notre Dame and author of the book, The Genesis of Gender, A Christian Theory. Good morning, Dr. Favale. Good morning, Anna. How are you? I am doing great and uh, excited to talk to you about this section in the book. Um, I literally have read this out loud to like five different people. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, because I found this so incredibly interesting. Um, Just to lay the groundwork for this conversation, tell us about the concept of intersectionality. So intersectionality is a term that was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, who's a black feminist legal scholar. So she was writing about discrimination law and possible gaps in discrimination law because discrimination law covers race and sex, discrimination based on those two things. But what about the case of, say, a black woman who might face discrimination based on her race and her sex? Is that a potential gap in the law? So she was recognizing that the experience or the challenges that black women face in society are going to be different than a white woman, but also different than black men, and that there needs to be more of an attention to a way that certain kinds of oppression or discrimination can intersect, right, in in the, the context of a certain person. So that's what the concept of intersectionality is. And I think it's a helpful tool for analysis, right? right. So there's something very say. straightforwardly true about this insight that we need to be able to see how those different kinds of discrimination could intersect in the context of a particular person. Well, and then widening it out to another positive use of, of this concept would be to to have more empathy for for people who are different than we are. Absolutely. Like, that's why I think this tool is used well. While I was writing the book, there was this moment when I was biking home from campus and going the opposite way was a man who he's white. 
you know, older than I am, a little bit older, middle-aged. Um, and, but he was like limping hard, right. And walking with great effort. Whereas I was like zooming along on my bike. And in that moment, I had this kind of intersectional insight where I was like, wow, how, how lucky I am to have, or what a privilege it is to have a healthy body, to be biking home to a warm meal and a happy family. And, but then what's interesting is that when some people would just look at that and say, oh, well, he's a white male. He's, you know, he has more power than I do. But you have to bring in these other dimensions, right? Like able-bodiedness and economic class. Um, so I think that when it's used as a tool for expanding compassion and realizing the, the kinds of challenges that particular people face, it's a very helpful tool. But it can be spun <laughs> out of control, can't it? How has intersectionality become an ism? Right. So I use the term intersectionalism in the book to distinguish between the basic insight of intersectionality and then when intersectionality becomes this totalizing worldview, that's when we see it kind of go off the rails a little bit. And I think that's that's where we often see it happen in pop culture rhetoric in our time. So if you'll remember last time we talked about Foucault um, and Judith Butler and this idea that there is there is nothing natural, right? There's no shared human nature. There's not even a shared human condition, but everything about us is created by social power, right? And so when we talk about intersectionalism, that tends to be the worldview that's animating in the background. And so human beings are then thought of as basically locations, we are kind of the, the sum total of our social locations. That's what makes us human. And so intersectionalism tends to erase the dimension of the universal. So there's no longer this kind of shared humanity that we can appeal to, but it also erases the individual, the level of the individual. So it, it, it tends to focus solely on kind of group categories and then cast people within those groups as a monolith, right? So that, you know, white people are like this and black people are like this, right? So there's, there's this erasure of the universal and the individual. And there is also this element of knowledge being power that you discuss in here as well. And, and it's so interesting how intersectionalism, as you put it, which, by the way, I have when I write intersectionalism in like my my word document here, it underlines it like uh, tried to tell me to change it to intersectionality. So you really have coined yeah. this term intersectionalism. Yeah. You know, this this idea of of power, instead of trying to dismantle power structures, they're actually just trying to create new power structures using mm -hmm. these different categories of of oppression. Right. So another feature of intersectionalism is that there's basically this implicit value hierarchy of oppressed categories. Um, and what's interesting is that class tends to be at the bottom. Like class wow. tends to hold the littlest capital when it comes to intersectionalism, which, which I think is a problem <laughs> because yeah. especially in American culture um, where, you know, what your economic class and being in poverty really does shape the contours of your life in a profound way. Um, and, but I guess what I say in, kind of cheekily in the book is that I think the reason the class is sidelined is that, this preoccupation with intersectional identities tends to happen in very elite contexts like the, the, the corporate boardroom and, you know, certainly the Ivy League classroom. So it's much better to focus on things like gender identity and sexual orientation um, and to, to not pay as much attention to class. 
So how does all of this then influence or play into the gender paradigm? Right. So the gender, so this, what's interesting is that intersectionalism takes the concepts of the gender paradigm and it, you know, so it takes this idea of gender identity and it, it puts it in this value hierarchy of oppressed categories. And it tends to rate it really high, like even higher than race sometimes and certainly higher than class. Um, and so if you have a gender identity that's not the norm, that's not cisgender, that's the term that's used, um, then then that gives you a lot of kind of social capital in the intersectionalist worldview. Um, so it, it tends to create these. So originally, like in feminist theory, you had the, the kind of boogeyman of patriarchy. Well, now it's cis heteropatriarchy, right? Because cis heteropatriarchy, that term shows this intersectionalist understanding because it's pulling together all these different kind of hybrid identities. But then it makes this particular um, kind of value hierarchy. And so it becomes a way, I think, also for maybe young people, um, you know, nobody, nobody, especially in, say, like a progressive public school, nobody wants to be a boring, straight, cisgender white guy anymore, you know, or a boring, straight, cisgender white girl. And so identifying, say, as non-binary, well, then that gives you a better kind of place on the intersectionalist pyramid, potentially, because no one wants to have the identity of the oppressor, right? Understandably. Right. Yeah. Um, but then again, what is potentially like a helpful idea gets kind of spun out of control into this, this totalizing worldview that becomes about power once again. This was such an interesting section of the book, worth the price of the book, if you ask me. It's called The Genesis of Gender, and you can find it linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Dr. Abigail Favalli, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, you're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The first annual Dominican Rosary Pilgrimage, sponsored by the Dominican Friars Foundation, will take place on Saturday, September 30th at the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C. This all-day event will feature conferences by Father Gregory Pine, resuscitation of the rosary, a fervorino by Father Lawrence Liu, and mass with Father James Brent as homilist. Join us for this day of prayer to Our Lady. For more information, visit rosarypilgrimage.org. That's rosarypilgrimage.org. Central Fabricators is proud to support the Sunrise Morning Show, where you'll get news from the Catholic perspective, while keeping you up to date on what's happening in the Vatican as well. It's also a great way to keep in touch with the Catholic faith throughout the week. Central Fabricators, based in Cincinnati, Ohio, is a family-owned business for over 75 years, manufacturing and repairing corrosion-resistant storage tanks, reactors, and pressure vessels. On the web at centralfabricators.com. That's centralfabricators.com. Coffee seems to become more important when any new school year rolls around, and this is a year to consider treating yourself to some truly delicious coffee. For that, we can highly recommend Mystic Monk Coffee, and when you shop their site after clicking the Mystic Monk link at sunrisemorningshow.com, you earn us a commission to help fund the show. You can also treat yourself to a new Sunrise Morning Show mug or travel mug in our online store. Get a mug and link to Mystic Monk Coffee through sunrisemorningshow.com. That's sunrisemorningshow.com. The most original and exclusive Catholic content is on EWTN Radio. You know, we talk story with each of our very unique guests for the whole hour so that you can go deep with us 
as you yourself pursue your own story of heroic virtue and as you pursue intimacy with God. The Bear Wozniak Adventure, Saturday night, 6 Eastern on EWTN Radio. The Sunrise Morning Show continues. I'm Matt Swaim, joined now by Andrew Pettiprin. He's fellow of popular culture with Word on Fire. And a while back, he wrote an article on the X-Files and theology. And I'm very excited that we finally get to talk about it. Andrew, welcome back to the show. Glad to be with you, Matt. In some ways, I feel like the title screens from the X-Files in the opening sequence kind of sum up the mood of contemporary society in three stages, right? Trust no one. The truth is out there, and I want to believe. I mean, that's kind of like the threefold manifesto of just about everybody. Yeah, absolutely, Matt. And, you know, yeah, the show was on in the 1990s, and in so many ways it captured the spirit of the 90s, but it also really speaks to our world today, just this longing that that we all have to, to believe, to to not be deceived, to know that there is such a thing as truth and that we can find it, but also that we have to be really careful and that there's this also this sense within us that we can't give our trust away too easily because um, people who you know want us to believe that something is the truth um, have their own agenda and that they desire to manipulate us. So it's kind of a, you know, the show just had this incredible way of summing up the way that the way that we all live in the world these days, just sort of knowing that uh, there's this big reality that is available to us, but kind of unsure how to find it. Well, speaking of available to us, uh, in that period of my life, I was going to Bible college, and we had just a, a few channels, and one of them was Fox, and one of them had the X Files, and that was appointment viewing. You get everybody together. We watched the X Files when it came out on, I believe it was Sunday nights at the time, and. What's funny is that I was in the media communications department and going through things, and and the issue when you're in a communications program, particularly something where you're learning about lighting and framing and script and all that, you can't watch any TV shows anymore because you just sit there and pick them apart, right? You just can't enjoy television or film anymore, except in our case for the X-Files. We're always like, now that's good lighting right? That's good framing. That's good storytelling, right? That's good character development. That's good script. Um, what was it about it that you think captured so many imaginations? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right about that. I mean, it, it is an extremely well done show just from a kind of technical perspective and from, uh, from just kind of an artistic visionary perspective. And that's all due to the creator, Chris Carter, who, um, who was just a really interesting guy who, created these great characters, Fox Mulder and Dana Scully, as kind of the, the, the believer and the skeptic. And he, he has said that he really identifies with both of those characters in himself, as kind of a lot of us do, you know. And he was able to, yeah, through lighting, through music, through, you know, just these extremely memorable characters to create this show that had at first just a cult following and was really doing something like no other TV show was doing, but as we look back on that time, we see that it was the forerunner to so much of this prestige television that even people who work in the industry and who sort of know how to look behind the curtain and know how the sausage is actually made can watch the show today and just see just a really high quality product that, you know, that, that isn't just your usual kind of cheesy, easy fare. 
well, and it pre- preserves some of the mystery. I mean, there's some big reveals along the way, but at the end of the day, there's still kind of a mystery of what's going on. And that, to me, I think, is what breaks the categories of the whole believer versus skeptic dichotomy that, you know, a lot of people kind of talk about when they talk about Mulder and Scully. Yeah, Mulder's the believer, Scully's the skeptic, but Scully... The skeptic is also a lapsed Catholic who still wears a crucifix every now and then and who still, you know, believes in miracles and is still, you know, profoundly moved by childbirth, still profoundly moved by experiences with nuns and priests. So, I mean, I think even in that, it showed that people who call themselves skeptics, as Scully would, you know, purely scientists, you can never get completely outside of that sort of human de- desire for the transcendent, can you? That's exactly right. And in fact, one of the wonderful things that happens on the show, you know, back and forth over the years, is that Mulder, who is thought, you know, who is generally the believer, the one who believes in sort of these deep state conspiracies and the existence of aliens and, you know, just all kinds of things that are going on, um, and, you know, many of which he's, he's right about, uh, he, he does uncover all kinds of nefarious things, versus Scully, who's supposed to be the one who wants to prove everything by science and verify everything and kind of be skeptical. But oftentimes their roles switch, and especially when it comes to faith matters, um, you're absolutely right. She's a lapsed Catholic, and her, her kind of lingering Catholic identity is one of the things that, um, that defines her character throughout all the seasons of the show. And there are all kinds of episodes where there are things that touch on matters of faith, where she kind of comes into the into the foreground as being the believer, whereas Mulder, the one who's willing to believe in the existence of aliens and all kinds of things like that, is suddenly not so sure and doesn't want to believe. So, you know, it's, a, it's just brilliant the way that the show captures that. And again, that just speaks to our, to our own day, to our own, our own individual souls. I mean, sometimes, you know, we, um, we actually want to believe, but it may take somebody who, in other circumstances, seems like kind of a skeptic to us in our lives to kind of shine a light on something sometimes that show us that maybe we're the skeptic. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, I, I, what I appreciate about the X-Files, well, there are a number of things I appreciate, but is that it still, it allows room for the mystery. Aliens exist, but you never know exactly how they exist or what their deal is completely and when you see them you see them in just sort of like shadowy forms uh most of the time um catholicism you know it may get its ribbings uh it may get some like sensational treatments but at the end of the day the show allows room for like the fact that you know there's just some stuff we can't know about uh the supernatural i mean it just allows that space for mystery you know and i kind of wonder how many people who might be hardened atheists who watch the X-Files are like, well, I don't know, maybe, you know, maybe there's something, maybe, maybe there's something out there that I don't know about, you know, that, that maybe it's pushed a few people from atheists to agnostics because of the way that it's handled that material. I think that's right. And, and, you know, I think even people who are, who do identify as believers, whether Catholics or, or some other faith, um, the show really helps us come to terms with, with, with the fact that the, the water that we swim in in our kind of culture these days has a it has a kind of like disenchantment about it and we realize when we watch a show like the x-files that we don't we don't actually live in a disenchanted universe that there's just all kinds of stuff all around us whether we're willing you know we're at the point as you say like to you know to acknowledge the reality of Christ in the church and that sort of thing watching a show like the x-files at least puts on our radar 
the the reality that that unseen things are are real and that our lives are governed by all kinds of stuff that isn't just like directly scientifically verifiable you know that there really is mystery and and as you say kind of a supernatural kind of nature or a supernatural kind of identity to things that um that that is just more than more than we can see well and this my friend is why you are a fellow of popular culture right because you got to have your lens you know to look through and uh your radar up when these things are happening in various uh, forms of media and television and film and even music. So I encourage people to go check out your article at wordonfire.org. The title of it is X-Files 25 Years Later. The truth is still out there, and I want to believe. Andrew Pettiprint, it's always a great time. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. It's 21 minutes past the hour. Have you considered energizing your business marketing plan? The Sunrise Morning Show is heard across the U.S. on more than 360 Catholic radio stations, reaching millions of engaged listeners in the heart of the morning commute. You can speak directly to a loyal group of like-minded people who prefer to use businesses who share their faith and values. Find out more about underwriting The Sunrise Morning Show by emailing me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. That's Leah at sacredheartradio.com. This is Father Rob Jack with the Heart of St. Paul. When we go by a business and see the words under new management, we expect that there are things that are going to be different there. There are going to be new faces and fresh ideas and a new beginning. Paul recognizes that this is what happens through baptism in Jesus Christ. He writes in the second letter to Corinthians chapter 5, From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once regarded Christ from a human point of view, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul's insight is that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has changed the meaning and destiny of the whole world. The cosmos is under new management. God has given back in Christ what we had lost through sin. And he not only gives it back, he elevates men and women to the unheard dignity of the sons and daughters of God. Death now marks the beginning of everlasting life. A world that previously offered despair now offers hope. The division brought about at the Tower of Babel has been destroyed by the power of the Holy Spirit, which speaks the common language of grace. Every person is capable of hearing if they are willing to listen to it. And we hear this from the heart of St. Paul. I'm Anna Mitchell on the Sunrise Morning Show, joined now by Michael Colopy. He's a renowned portrait photographer, and Ignatius Press has released a soft cover edition of his book of photos of Mother Teresa and her missionaries of charity. It's called Works of Love Are Works of Peace. Michael, welcome to the program. Such a pleasure, Anna. Can you um, just sort of tell us about the process of putting together this photo essay that you have of Mother Teresa and her sisters? Well, this is a reflection of 15 years of documenting Mother Teresa and the Missionaries of Charity. You know, Mother um, had, a, had a deal with God that she told me that for every photograph taken of her, a soul was released from purgatory. <laughs> so you can imagine <laughs> the kind of pressure I was under. I in fact, uh, there was a day out in Washington, D.C., and that uh, Mother had seen me, my face, in the crowd of a sea of other photographers, and 
walked up to me shaking her finger with a big smile saying, today the place was cleaned out. Mm. So she and I knew what she meant. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but in any case, uh, so it's really a reflection of photographing Mother over the course of 15 years in various parts of the world. Uh, at one point, Mother had invited my wife and I to come out and visit her in Calcutta. And I thought it was very important to go and see the work that she established there, her first homes, the House for the Dying, and uh, the orphanage, um, Shishu Bhavan, and uh, the, ha- the home that she did, which is really kind of a city within a city for those individuals suffering from leprosy. But I have to say, um, in the course of photographing Mother, probably some of my most favorite opportunities or, or times with her, moments with her, uh, were really without the camera. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the early days, I had the opportunity of driving her around in my car, uh, she would ask me to drive her to some of her appointments here in San Francisco. And it was an opportunity for me to ask her questions that I had on spirituality, on her own theology, and it was just this wonderful catechesis uh, lesson that I would have. Uh, we would sometimes measure distances by praying the rosary, and then after that uh, I could ask her questions, and she was very candid about answering um, you know, anything that I might ask her. And I remember one particular day, Anna, where I was just so um, blown away and kind of inspired by the amount, that myriad of emotions around Mother, uh, in having people coming up to her, kind of witnessing individuals come up to her and want, wanting to either kiss her or, or to talk to her or pour out their innermost confessions. And it dawned on me that she really didn't judge anybody that came to her. And I know one time she had actually told me that had she not picked up the first person in Calcutta, she wouldn't have picked up 42,000 from the streets of Calcutta herself. When we got back into the car, I asked her that very question. I said, you know, Mother, you don't seem to judge anybody. And she told me that I never judge anybody because it doesn't allow me the time to love them. Hmm. I mean, we hear stories of people meeting Mother Teresa in this way, and and they're usually just short little visits, and yet they have such an effect on people. So 15 years of this, Michael, I mean, what kind of an effect did Mother Teresa have on, on your own life? Well, I have to say I was very blessed and fortunate to grow up in a very uh, holy, beautiful family. However, you know, that time, that opportunity with Mother only strengthened my faith, and I learned so many things. There isn't a day that goes by and that I don't think of something that Mother had told me. Um, she really had that unshakable trust in God. You know, she believed completely in divine providence. Um, I know that she and the Missionaries of Charity, the Society, never accepted any kind of government grants or, or help from the Archdiocese. They believed uh, as Mother had set up the Society in Divine Providence. And I was interested in that and asked Mother one time uh, while we were in the car about that, and she looked over at a tree that was filled with birds, and she said, look at the, the birds. They never seem to wonder or worry about where their next meal is coming from, yet God takes care of them. And he sa- she said that, you know, God loves us so much more intimately we should never have any kind of worries, but just completely have that unshakable divine trust in, in God. Now, I want to back up for a second here, Michael. How in the world did you get this kind of access to her in the first place? Well, I oftentimes wonder that myself. <laughs> you know, I think in some ways it was just providence and, and sort of my, my path 
Um, I, it was just obviously an incredible blessing. I think that Mother often said that had anything prepared her to go to heaven, it was all the publicity, because she never asked for that. Mm-hmm. And I was quite acutely aware of, of that fact. Um, and I'm more of a portrait photographer than a photojournalist, so I always had that interest of, of sitting across from Mother and actually uh, doing a portrait of Mother, and she was kind enough over the course of those 15 years to sit for me three different times. Mm -hmm. And I I can only say that just an incredible blessing. I really don't know why I had that opportunity over other individuals. It could have been anybody, truly. Um, But um, I think ultimately perhaps Mother realized that uh, there was a good purpose behind doing something like this. I know that uh, the initial portrait session that I had, uh, in which I had photographed Mother in, in San Francisco, um, that that was sort of at, at the encouragement of a lot of the sisters wanting an updated uh, photograph of Mother to carry in their prayer books. Mm-hmm. And um, I think Mother realized that, um, you know, the intentions were, were appropriate, and I was always quite aware of the fact that, you know, Mother had such a busy schedule and Obviously, there were more important things to take care of. Um, you know, there were many opportunities that I had on the inside to document, uh, for example, intimate moments, such as Mother uh, deeply in prayer uh, during the Mass or uh, in the chapel by herself. And um, I was really quite privy to a lot of moments like that. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because photography and in particular uh, photojournalistic photography, and I know that you say you're not a photojournalist, but a lot of the photos in here of of Mother Teresa and her sisters are photojournalistic in nature. It's a very intimate art form. So what was it like to experience Mother Teresa's life in this way? Truly, I would say the nucleus of Mother Teresa's life was her prayer life. Mm -hmm. You know, it was very hard for me to gauge, Anna, how many hours she slept, because I would come into the chapel, whether it be in Calcutta or anywhere in the United States or or in Europe, and see Mother almost always in the back of, of the chapel praying as I walked in. And then, you know, she would have obviously daily Mass, and then late into the night, they would be praying and, and have a holy hour, and uh, and then I'm told that, you know, her light in Calcutta would burn oftentimes in the early morning hours while she would write letters to those who had written her. So she was quite a prolific writer in regard to anybody who had a request of Mother uh, that she would actually personally write back a handwritten note. Mm. And, you know, obviously throughout the day they would be quite busy with uh, the various homes that mother would visit or the various tasks at hand in helping the poorest of the poor. It was really kind of opening up this intimate life where I would see mother dealing with everyone uh, the same, whether it was somebody who was well-known as a politician or the poorest of the poor on the street. She always treated each person the same and with the same amount of dignity and respect. And, um, you know, it was quite extraordinary to just be a witness to that, and um, it really was the the great uh, relationship uh, that I had outside of my family life. One of the photos that really struck me in this uh, book is a photograph that you took of Mother Teresa's feet. Do you remember taking that photo? What was going through your mind at the time? It was taken in Calcutta, and it was kind of an interesting story, Anna, that particular day, because uh, Mother had agreed to sit for me 
uh, right before she flew off that afternoon to Eastern Europe. And uh, she agreed to meet with me on the last day that I was going to be there in Calcutta to speak a little bit and for allow, to allow me to take these pictures. And it was a day in Calcutta where it was 110 degrees and raining. Wow. And I had a Hasselblad camera, which is a medium format camera, and the lens kept uh, fogging up because um, of the weather. And with cameras like that, especially with expensive cameras, uh, if they continue to fog up, they will eventually ruin the element within. So mm-hmm. I ended up wiping down the camera, and I had never even, it never had occurred to me to actually bring defogger. They actually have a spray that can defog <laughs> lenses. In any case, I had wiped the lens down about 15 times prior to Mother coming into the room, and it was unsuccessful, obviously, and I was at that point very disappointed and resigned to the fact that I wouldn't be able to get those photographs that I wanted to. And at at that point, a lot of the sisters wanted me to photograph her feet because they were so symbolic to the work that she had done. And in fact, in Calcutta, in India, especially in her home, Mother would never wear even sandals because she felt that the poor didn't have access to shoes, and she never wanted the poor to come into her home and feel in any way inferior or uncomfortable. And for that reason, you know, she never spent too much time on the phone because she thought the phone was a luxury and her house was very barren um, inside and uh, had these concrete slab floors that you can see in that particular picture of her feet. But to go back to that particular day, suddenly Mother came into the room and sat across from me and I looked one more time through the lens and it was completely clear. And later that morning, um, (laughs) there was a beautiful Italian couple that had adopted a baby for mother. And I got to know them a little bit that morning. And then we exchanged uh, addresses. And probably two months after that, I received a photograph with a letter from them saying, you know, we took this photograph on that particular morning that we adopted the baby. And we feel that this is a miraculous picture because there's this beautiful glow over the baby and, and mother's head. And, of course, <laughs> I looked at the photograph, and I could tell that it was because the lens was fogged up. <laughs> uh, but I didn't have the heart to tell them. <laughs> <laughs> well, miraculous in its own way, I'm sure. It's an incredible book that was put together originally in 1996, but is now in a soft cover version. Clearly, God's hand is on your life as a photographer and, and just as a man in general. And, and I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us here on the Sunrise Morning Show, Michael. Thank you so much, Anna. It's such an honor and a privilege to speak to you. Thanks for listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. It's 35 minutes past the hour. Waking up with Mystic Monk Coffee is definitely a better way to start your day. Not only are you getting a great cup of coffee, but your purchase helps support the life of the Carmelite Monks of Wyoming. And your purchase can also help our work. All you need to do is go first to sonricemorningshow.com. When you click the Mystic Monk link on the side of the page, we earn a commission. Support the monks and support the Sunrise Morning Show. Click the Mystic Monk link at sunrisemorningshow.com. That's sonricemorningshow.com. What does the church say about divorce? The Catholic Church is very clear, as was Jesus in his teachings. Those words of Jesus, what God has joined, let no man put asunder, are as important today as they were when he taught this important message while still on this earth. Today, however, too many people regard these words as out of touch with the times. 
but they cannot change the truth. Some marriages, unfortunately, face problems so serious they cannot be resolved with any likelihood of permanence. Civil divorce often results. Despite what some people think, divorce does not cause a Catholic to be excommunicated from the church. That person is still Catholic and is still welcome to attend Mass and to receive the sacraments, including the Eucharist. But they cannot receive the sacrament of marriage because they, in fact, are already married. The only way either party can marry again is to have the marriage declared invalid, or what we commonly refer to as an annulment. For more information, contact your local pastor or refer to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 1649 and 1650. For Sacred Heart Radio, this is Deacon Bill Mullaney. Sunrise Morning Show continues. We've been going through Dr. Kevin Vos' excellent book, Humble Strength, The Eye-Opening Benefits of Humility. Dr. Vost, good morning. Good morning, Matt. So today we get to talk about St. Anselm. And of course, uh, we've got Benedict's Ladder of Humility. For Anselm, he's got a mountain. So what are the differences here? So they're drawing on, on different ways of looking at humility from different angles in terms of our inner attitudes, our, our emotions, our outward behaviors. So Anselm was well aware of all the insights that, that St. Benedict gave us, but he also came up with some additional imagery of his own and other ways of looking at humility that I think were really, really uh, powerful. But one, one thing, just to start, yeah, uh, Benedict talks about a ladder or steps of humility, and Anselm tells us about this mountain of humility. And one of the really neat things about it uh, that, that struck me and in the book I try to kind of depict a little simple image of a mountain, is that we often do speak of humility as lowliness, you know, coming from the word hummus, for it grounds us, it's down there below, and yet it opens us up to all the virtues that come above it. And pride, when St. Thomas Aquinas and other of the Latin doctors of the Church talk about pride, they use the word superbia, which means it's super or it's over. We think we're more than what we are. So in a sense, pride sits way up too high. But in this particular depiction, uh, St. Anselm talks about what he calls the Valley of Pride, which sits even below the foot of this mountain humil- of humility. And as we climb this mountain of humility, we reach higher and higher until we reach this uh, peak where the air uh, is clear and beautiful and we're, and we're truly free. All right, so in that case, if we're going to climb this mountain, we've got to know what the stories are in it. So if you could, run us through those. Sure, sure. And I will say these are not easy, as, as uh, listeners will probably uh, agree as they hear these. But the, step number one up the mountain, to acknowledge oneself contemptible. Two, to grieve for this. Three, to confess it. Four, to convince others of this. Five, to bear patiently that this be said of us. Six, to suffer oneself, or kind of offer oneself in a sense, to be treated with contempt. And seven, to love being treated this way. Oh, those are rough. <laughs> You're not kidding. You know, as I'm thinking about this, though, um, it is important, I, I believe, to, to make a distinction here. So if the first step in humility is to acknowledge oneself contemptible, if this is what Anselm thinks, and there's parallels to this in what St. Benedict says as well, mm-hmm. uh, bearing in mind that this is coming from two Benedictine monks who have a concept in their mind 
they're, they're formed in the idea that God created all things good, including me. And this is a very different concept, uh, a starting point for, uh, you know, bringing up a, an idea like considering yourself contemptible. Um, then you would start with, for instance, in Calvinism or the Reformed uh, tradition, which sees all human beings as uh, totally depraved. There is no good in us, right, uh, at all <laughs> because of the fall. And so the humility that, that, they, that they're talking about, they're, they're, they are already starting with the distinction in their mind that to, to be contemptible doesn't mean that we are bad creations of God. It just means that we have, we have fallen and we can't get up on our own. That's exactly right. You know, of course, St. Thomas himself sums up just that idea that you so rightly brought up. This is not saying, yeah, we are utterly depraved and worthless. Uh, Thomas says this is acquiring knowledge of one's own deficiency. In other words, knowledge that God, there is good in us, and God expects us to, to grow in goodness, but we must be aware of the fact that we're falling short of the mark. We so often do. That we are sinners, that, that we need to grow. But it's not saying that we're utterly worthless, that we're utterly depraved, there's no good in us. It's saying, no, God has given us natural good in the fact that we exist, and he also offers us his supernatural graces, supernatural goods, and it's up to us to grasp them. But kind of a first step in building those the virtues and in accepting those graces is realizing that, yes, you know, we are sinners. We need to move away from those deficiencies in us so we can climb that mountain of humility and other virtues. Yeah, of course, step two to grieve for this, and I think everybody is has some sorrow for their sins. Uh, sometimes, depending on our level of maturity, we're just sad that we got caught or oh, sad yeah. that there are consequences for what we did. Um, but having like a real grief for sin is a big deal here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think of these, these first precepts in terms of the actual sacrament, you know, of confession, to acknowledge oneself to contemptible, kind of uh, uh, like an examination of conscience, being aware of where we fall short, and then to grieve for it, to be sorry for it. You know, as we say, oh my God, I'm heartily sorry for having offended you. And then we, list, then we actually confess it to the priest, list the ways that we have. So I see these three steps as kind of uh, the steps that, that really do honor to the great gift of the sacrament of confession itself. Yeah, what's wild about this is, as you've gone through this, so step one is to acknowledge it. Uh, step two is to grieve for your lack. Uh, step three is to confess it. We still have four more steps. You would think that confessing your sins would be like step six or seven, but it's actually pretty early in the process. Yeah, it really is, and it's interesting, too, those three steps, as I think about it. The first one is a matter of knowledge, acknowledgement. The second is a matter of emotions. We're going to grieve and sorrow. The third is a matter of actual actions. We're going to go confess. Yes, but in a way, we're only, we're not quite halfway up the mountain with a confession, because, you know, as we do, when we confess, you know, if we commit mortal sins, we've you know, removed ourselves from God's grace and His charity. And through confession, you know, we're, we're absolved and we're restored in God's graces. Then God ha expects more of us. <laughs> you know, we need to keep climbing. Uh, so, yeah, that, that fourth is to convince others of it. You know, the idea that we're not going to, I guess, basically just not going to try to hide our faults. We're not going to always make excuses for ourselves. We're going to fess up and not be ashamed to, to admit to others, hey, you know, I, I was wrong on that. Hey, you know, I shouldn't have done that. Yeah, the testimony aspect of it. Now, uh, this is very interesting because at the beginning of October, uh, we have the Feast of, October, of uh, Bartolo Longo, former Satanist, and had this mm. massive conversion— mm and then went on to be an apostle of the rosary. But long after he had converted and was spreading devotion to the rosary, people were still talking trash about him and about the things that he used to do, and he lived his whole life basically under suspicion of 
you know, whether he was really a convert and whether he could really, by promoting the rosary, atone for the horrible things that he had done. I mean, this kind of ties into step five, doesn't it? Uh, yes, it does. To, to bear patiently, you know, what, what the, anything to be said about us, especially a person with such a checkered past. And thanks be to God, many of the great saints were people with, with very sinful pasts in a, in a variety uh, of ways. But those saints, you know, we often say to a person, if we're complimenting them, you know, you have the patience of a saint. Well, the, pain, the saints do have this patience. And in Benedict's rule, he talks about patience in terms of, uh, of monks being willingly obeying the orders of their superiors. And here Anselm is looking at this aspect of patience that's bearing uh, insults, you know, from others. And St. Gregory the Great adds a nice insight here that Thomas brings to us. And he says, you know, especially the importance of being patient regarding those who insult us. He says, there is nothing great in being humble towards those who treat us with regard, for even worldly people do this, but we should especially be humble to those who make us suffer. That's riffing, of course, on the words of our Lord, who says, you know, even the sinners are good to the people who are good to them, <laughs> to you. But how's that play into step six, then? Yeah, and there is, you know, to suffer oneself to be treated with contempt. So Thomas, Thomas elaborates here, saying that, uh, that if we're striving for humility, we're not going to seek outward excellence, you know. The people are going to praise us. But we're even going to be open to or welcome when, when we're abased by others, when others uh, put us down because of the, 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 the way we're trying to grow uh, in humility. So, so it is a matter, you know, it's, a, it's a tough thing to do, to, to put oneself out there, to be willing to suffer that contempt. All right, so what's step seven? Top of the mountain. Yeah, to love thus being treated. Thomas says this is even to go so far as lovingly to embrace external uh, abasement. And I must say that this, this is hard to fathom, but when I think about it, my thoughts always go to the St. Saint, uh, Saint Martin de Porras. And he was so known for being insulted. He was a mixed race. Some of these people, even within his order, religious would call him a mulatto dog. Constantly, he, he bared various kinds of insults. But in one famous case, a, a priest who's waiting to have his leg amputated uh, calls him the mulatto dog. He's very grumpy. He insults Martin. And, and people say that when Martin left his room, he chuckled and smiled to himself and discerned that that priest was craving a salad of capers. So Martin decides the next day he's going to bring, create and bring the priest just that salad. The priest receives this. He, you know, he, he's just amazed by, by uh, Martin's humility and his kind, loving care. And the story goes that they became friends, and then the priest actually did not have to have his leg amputated. But to me, that St. Martin de Porres is one of the finest examples of this highest level of humility, even a welcoming and in some sense even enjoying it uh, when others point out our faults or insult us, trying to good, do good deeds for the very people that do that to us. It's a pretty cool set of uh, thoughts here from St. Anselm. You also have Humility's Holy Toolbox and some prayer and uh, reflection on the sacraments at the end of this chapter. There's just a bunch of great stuff in here, and it's just a reminder, too, that you know there are a lot of interesting books out there written by people who are alive right now, uh, but there are way more interesting books written by dead people. <laughs> so uh, head out there and find the wisdom, and especially as compiled in humble strength, The Eye-Opening Benefits of Humility by Dr. Kevin Vos. We've got it linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Dr. Vos, thank you as always. Have a great day. Thank you too, man. Always my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back. Support is from Solidarity HealthShare. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things that violate your beliefs? 
Have you ever felt there has to be a better way, but didn't know you had any options? If you answered yes, I've got some good news for you. There is a better way and a more affordable way. Solidarity HealthShare can save you hundreds of dollars each month while actually supporting your beliefs. Because the best news is that Solidarity HealthShare costs a whole lot less than insurance. It's time to jump in and put your money where your faith is and put some money back into your wallet at the same time. Join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based healthcare sharing community. Prices start as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save, 844-334-3245. That's 844-334-3245. Solidarity HealthShare, 844-334-3245. Have you considered energizing your business marketing plan? The Sunrise Morning Show is heard across the U.S. on more than 360 Catholic radio stations, reaching millions of engaged listeners in the heart of the morning commute. You can speak directly to a loyal group of like-minded people who prefer to use businesses who share their faith and values. Find out more about underwriting The Sunrise Morning Show by emailing me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. That's Leah at sacredheartradio.com. As the largest religious media network in the world, EWTN has an important role in educating others about our Catholic faith and spreading the good news of salvation. We invite you to explore our numerous pages of historical faith documents, prayers, teachings, and other current issues in Catholicism today. Visit EWTN.com and click Catholicism. EWTN is the Global Catholic Network. Back with us now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Chris McGregor. You can find all kinds of great spiritual resources and podcasts at her site, discerninghearts.com. Chris, welcome back. It's good to be back, Anna. I thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about someone who is very special. Yes, I am so excited to have this conversation with you. So St. Therese, the Little Flower, of course, one of the most beloved saints that the church has ever had. And we're going to be talking about one of her family members today, one of her sisters. Can you tell us about Servant of God, Leonie Martin? You know, many people are not familiar with her. They know, of course, Marie and Pauline and Celine because they were in the Carmel with St. Therese. But Leonie, she probably has one of the most compelling stories of all the sisters, and they're all extraordinary. But uh, Leonie, is, uh, she was the sister that was in between uh, Marie and Pauline, and then there was Celine and Therese. The remarkable thing about Leonie, uh, uh, we have a series on discerninghearts.com, and particularly on our YouTube page, about the life of Leonie with Father Timothy Gallagher. And he had done a lot of research on her because a few years ago, we did a, uh, a complete story on the letters of St. Therese. And it's remarkable, Anna, in letters, you hear so much more about people. You learn their feelings and their thoughts and their friendships, and it's a tremendous gift to the church. But in those letters, we explored the letters of Saint Zelie Martin. Through Zelie, as we were exploring these letters, we began to hear about Leonie and the struggles that she would have. Through that, Father Gallagher and I said, there, there's something here, because when you hear Zelie describing Leonie, 
you begin to hear, you know, this. Uh, sometimes she's referred to as the difficult child. But when you listen about her issues and the problems that she was having, for me, as a mother of two children of my three, two of them are in the autism spectrum. And I began to hear through Zelie's words, through these incredible words of the self-love saint, her, her fears, her concerns, her um, despair at, on occasion for this child who was so unique in the, in the sufferings that she endured in her lifetime. Can you speak to that specifically, Chris? How did it hit home with you, the words of, of Zelie, about this child that, that appears to be on the autism spectrum, you being a mother of, of children with autism? Yeah, the, the, one of the first things I noted w was that when she would write about La pauvre Leonie, Zelie Wood, poor Leonie, poor Leonie, because she was born a little early, she had fragile health. Before she was 18 months old, she almost died. This child, before she was two, had whooping cough, she suffered measles, had strong convulsions, very bad convulsions. So you know her fever was very high. And she had all over her body at, a, at this young age, severe eczema, the, uh, a, a type of eczema that just oozes fluid sometimes. And it just, it, it would, especially when she was stressed. She also had intestinal issues where it was very difficult to feed her because foods would cause her all kinds of problems. And there are so many children in the autism spectrum that suffer from these same type of maladies. She would end up having learning disabilities. It was very difficult for Leonie to be able to communicate. They would say she, she couldn't learn how to speak. And when she tried to communicate, even as she got older, they, they would say, well, she speaks like a three, three or four-year-old. Well, children in the autism spectrum, it's actually, it is classified as a, as a language disorder because of their, it's not that they're not intelligent, it's just that they have a hard time fashioning sentences or individual words or reading social cues. Boy, Leonie could not read a social cue, <laughs> you know, so she may say something that was uh, inappropriate or imprudent. Uh, it was difficult to go to church. It was uh, difficult in all kinds of areas. And yet, Zelie, as she's writing, she's saying, I, I don't know what to do. You know, here's a woman who is running a business, the lace business, which became the family business. So, so like many working women out there, they're in the same situation. They, they, she has to work, has children. She's not only having pregnancies, but in the midst after, after Leonie, children, her children begin to die at a young age because of her lack of ability to be able to nurse them, wow. because she also had breast cancer coming. Oh my gosh. And all the while, she's struggling to help Leonie. And so sometimes when you hear the story, you hear of this child who is difficult. She had tantrums. So many parents in the autism, have kids in the autism spectrum, are aware of those times when they, they break down in frustration, and it appears as though they're having a tantrum. But it, so often, it's just because they cannot communicate and they're frustrated. And so they, they yell out and they do different things. But it does have a great ending. This story has an incredible ending. Leonie is a bearer of hope. Okay, with less than a minute to go uh -huh. here, Chris, can you just speak to the importance? I mean, Zelie is a saint, 
and Leonie is is a servant of God, heroic virtue's been recognized. Can you speak to the importance of having saints who had autism and who understand autism? Yes, I think that's the biggest thing right now. People are, we have had a huge response to this series, for example, right? She's dying, right? And she sends a letter to her sister-in-law, Celine, and she says, I would go through all of this illness again if it meant that Leonie could become a saint. Wow. Now, this is at a time, you know, she she's not thinking so much uh, of Pauline and Marie and Therese and Celine. They're going to be okay, but she, she wants her daughter to become a saint. And look what happens. Their story is such a love story between a mother and a daughter, but also of a sister because Therese is huge in this story. So I encourage people to learn more about Leonie Martin and also Saint Zelie. Most definitely. DiscerningHearts.com is linked at SunriseMorningShow.com. Chris, thank you so much. You're very welcome, Anna. And that'll do it for this special edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. Thanks so much for joining us. For Matt Swaim and Paul Lockman, I'm Anna Mitchell. May God bless you and keep you and grant you his peace. Let's begin this hour of the Sunrise Morning Show joined in prayer together. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Eternal Father, I offer you the merits of the precious blood of your beloved Son, Jesus, my Savior and my God, for the spread and exaltation of the Church, the welfare of her visible head, the Pope, the bishops and pastors of souls, and all the ministers of the sanctuary. Blessed and praised forevermore be Jesus, who saved us with his blood. Eternal Father, I offer you the merits of the precious blood of your beloved Son, Jesus, my Savior and my God, for peace and concord among nations, the humbling of the enemies of the faith, and the welfare of all Christian people. Blessed and praised forevermore be Jesus, who saved us with his blood. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning and welcome to this special hour, the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell and with Matt Swaim, we head back to the archives today to revisit some of our favorite interviews of the past. Hope you can stick around for the full hour ahead and hope you enjoy the full hour ahead. We'll get started right now. It's two minutes past the hour. Marlon De La Torre is online at knowingisdoing.org. Good morning, Marlon. Go Bucks. Good morning, Annie. Go Bucks. So any parent is going to, at some point, need some peace and quiet away from the kids. I mean, that's inevitable. But is it is it possible to take that too far? Mm. It can be. Um, the it's it's our carnal desire um, as a parent. We, we want some peace and quiet. We give ourselves to our children, and then without thinking, that desire can almost. Uh, become, I dare say, sinful in the fact that we not simply ignore, but we lose sight of our role as parents, of our role as caretakers for our children. So it it can be taken uh, too far to a point where we negate or neglect the basic needs of our children, especially 
um, our children in, in, in those particular developmental ages, uh, being very young, where we just completely uh, lose focus or just forget that they're there. So it, it, can, it can get to that point. Well, you talk about basic necessities. I mean, I make sure that I, you know, feed and water my kids, that kind of thing. But you're talking like spiritual basics, right? Absolutely, because it's 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 not that difficult to feed a child or to give them something to drink or to tell them, all right, you get dressed or make sure you brush your teeth. But when the child's through the whole process of getting ready, whether it's in the morning, noon, afternoon, whatever the case may be, is looking for something else or is looking for mom or dad to direct their their presence to them or to let them know a hey, great job or they're looking for uh, sound spiritual affirmation. And we're not talking about, oh, great job, God loves you. No, they want to know that, Mom, you, you really are praying for me, or Mom, Dad, you, you're, you're actually caring for me, you're taking the time to, to bring me into a, a different mindset or a different spiritual atmosphere at home. If, if that doesn't happen, the child will know, and, and he or she will try to redirect those desires and wants towards something else, which then becomes uh, that whole process of isolation. And you see mom and child separating slowly but surely. Well, can you remind us of the purpose of a family unit in the eyes of the Church? It's basically, it's, it's, it's a communion of persons. I mean, the catechism is, is really rich in that expression of faith on the family. Um, we, as a family, bear the image of the Holy Family, for one. But prior to that, our anthropology as a family reflects uh, the Blessed Trinity, the role of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the distinction of what the Trinity offers us uh, as a communion of persons, as a bound unit, as something that the family takes to heart, really stands up uh, in the Church. It's literally the privileged community where all our thoughts, uh, our deliberations as spouses, our cooperation comes into play, not just between spouses themselves, but spouses and the children and how they're raised. So it, it, it's such a, a tantamount and pinnacle point that the Church brings regarding the community of persons and the family that uh, the, the position is it can never be separated. And yet that's what a parent is doing if they're falling into this realm of isolation. Absolutely, because, again, we're cardinal, and that's part of the challenge of dealing with our Christian anthropology. There is that aspect that really will dwell on, oh, basically, the, the in a very simple way, the, the, the apple syndrome, where that the desire of that tree, if we go back to the analogy of Adam and Eve, and we look at the whole premise of why they would somehow seek something else other than God, it's just that our our parental role sometimes will take that call and say, well, is there something else that will satisfy mm-hmm. me other than me giving myself to, to this child? What do I get in return? So it almost becomes a return on investment mentality uh, <laughs> regarding a parent. So, and that's that's that shouldn't be the case. It should be a selfless desire to see a child grow on behalf of those who are willing to sacrifice for that child because they need to see that. That, that that's how a child grows by how mom and dad really relate to them, sacrifice for them, and place them in situations of maturity. When that doesn't happen, they'll seek other means. Well, I think, uh, as you're saying this, I think it's easy for parents, especially when the, the children are young, 
to not look at them as, you know, real human beings with inherent dignity. They are, you know, children who need to be cared for. I mean, I, I said it in just just a few minutes ago, but but it's true. Sometimes we just look at them as almost like animals that just need to be fed and watered. And that's what I have to do to care for them. How important is it for us to remember as parents that our children have that inherent dignity and that longing for God that we do? I think um, it is it is so vital. Let me put it. I'll put it in this in this very basic format. If a parent takes the time to to bless a child, so you make a sign across on your son or your daughter before they go to bed, or as they go to school, or when they wake up in the morning, if you allow your son or daughter, say they're five or six, to do the same thing, you're literally reverberating that whole aspect of Christian anthropology. You're telling them, you are important to me because I want your blessing. You're important to me because you are part of this family. Because the tendency for parents is, well, yeah, you're part of the family. Here, here's your food. Here's your clothes. All right, get to school. Well, you're, that's, that tends to be the, the, the secular focus of family. You're, you're just one of many items on the to-do list. But if we change that focus to, no, you're my son, you're my daughter, I, I'm praying for you, I want you to pray for me, or the simple act of a blessing before meals together, or the notion that, hey, let, let's say good morning to our Lord, there's the crucifix, there's a picture of, say, the Sacred Heart or the Divine Mercy, whatever it, whatever may be present in your home. If you incorporate your son or daughter into that, they're going to know that there is an intimate bond or there's a spiritual direction or there's a purpose on why this family thing is supposed to be this way in general. And and those little things are, are so powerful for a child. Um, I'll put it just at my 18-year-old. I've got four kids, 18 to 3. My 18-year-old, every night, still comes to me, Hey, Dad, can I get my blessing? Mm. And I and I give him his blessing. He he knows. I mean, he he he's 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 a man's man. He's 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 a tough kid. He goes to school. He's working, but he's hey dad, can I get that blessing? So those things matter. Hmm. They really do. A great place to end the conversation. We've been talking to Marlon De La Torre. We'll have your post on this linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Thank you so much, and go Bucks. You're welcome. Go Bucks. Thanks, Annie. God bless. You too. Thank you. I'm Anna Mitchell. You're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. Laura Teach Me to Pray, the Ignatian Prayer Series, can now train you and others electronically to become facilitators and bring the Ignatian way of prayer to your parish. Come to know and love Jesus Christ like never before and help others do the same. Don't pass up the opportunity to join this work of the new evangelization. Go to LordTeachMeToPray.com and click on Digital Training. That's LordTeachMeToPray.com and click on Digital Training. The first annual Dominican Rosary Pilgrimage sponsored by the Dominican Friars Foundation will take place on Saturday, September 30th at the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C. This all-day event will feature conferences by Father Gregory Pine, resuscitation of the rosary, a fervorino by Father Lawrence Liu, and mass with Father James Brent as homilist. Join us for this day of prayer to Our Lady. For more information, visit rosarypilgrimage.org. That's rosarypilgrimage.org. Coffee seems to become more important when any new school year rolls around, and this is a year to consider treating yourself to some truly delicious coffee. For that, we can highly recommend Mystic Monk Coffee, and when you shop their site after clicking the Mystic Monk link at sunrisemorningshow.com, you earn us a commission to help fund the show. 
You can also treat yourself to a new Sunrise Morning Show mug or travel mug in our online store. Get a mug and link to Mystic Monk Coffee through sunrisemorningshow.com. That's sunrisemorningshow.com. Catholic Women Now hosts Julie Nelson and Chris Magruder speak to what's on the hearts and minds of women, covering all things in light of the Catholic faith. You can hear Catholic Women Now, as well as faith-filled podcasts from our friends and affiliates across the nation, all in one place, all free at EWTN Podcast Central. Visit EWTNradio.net slash podcasts today. It's the Sunrise Morning Show, and Father Hezekiah Carnazzo will continue our Salvation History series today. He's from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Good morning, Father. Good morning, Annie. It's a blessing to be with you and your listeners today. Blessing to have you back. Okay, so we left off talking about the priests of Israel, the Levites, and how they came to become the priests of Israel. And so that leaves us in basically the, the book of Leviticus, correct? Uh, yes, Annie. You know, th- this is, a, this is as I said last time, the most critical moment, the turning point in the entire Old Testament. Besides the fall of Adam and Eve, okay, this week can be seen as almost like a second fall. Um, and so it's important that your listeners get this right and understand the place of the Levitical priesthood in the life of Israel. So just, just by way of, of, of review, we're in the a book of Exodus, and in the book of Exodus, God's people, of course, exit out of Egypt, right? And it's, on, it's in chapter 12 of Exodus, we learn that, that they begin a new life. It's the a new year, uh, and, uh, the first month of the year, the 14th day that Passover happens, and they leave Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 19, it says it took him three months uh, from leaving Egypt, camping at, at the Red Sea, crossing the Red Sea, finally coming to Mount Sinai on the third new moon. So after basically three months of time, they're at Mount Sinai. Moses goes up the mountain, and and uh, and 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 for sake of time, we can say he's up there a long time. The people of God begin to ask uh, what happened to him, and then they fall into the sin of the golden calf, um, which is uh, in in chapter chapter thirty two so of of Exodus, and and it's there that um, we have to remember that the golden calf was one of the gods, or the calf god, was one of the, one of the gods of Egypt. Um, and the people begin, they take Egypt in their hearts with them, out of Egypt, and that's the great, the great tragedy. Uh, and it's there uh, at the base of Mount Sinai that the firstborn enter into this, this worship of the firstborn. It was, one of the, it was the cult of the firstborn. And because of that, when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, they see that the, that the people of God who were meant to lead the people in their priestly prayer, namely the firstborn of, of Israel, uh, end up leading the people into false worship. And it's there in chapter 32 that Moses' family, the Levites, come to him, and he says, Today you have ordained yourself for the, for the service of the Lord, in other words, for worship. And it's, you're right, it's there that the book of Leviticus fits into the story. It's so important, because the book of Leviticus is very difficult to read. And I'm going to tell you something, and I, I know many of your listeners are going to say, I can't believe a priest just said this, but if you're not a Levite, then what are you doing reading the book of Leviticus? The book of Leviticus <laughs> is, all those, <laughs> is all those little things about how you're to worship God, and why? Because when, when I have my children and they disobey, 
what do I do? I explain the law more clearly. And that's exactly what the book of Leviticus is. So I'm going to tell your listeners that you're reading through salvation history. You can go ahead and skip over the book of Leviticus as long as you know that it fits in here, right here at this moment, in Exodus chapter 32 at the sin of the golden calf. Very interesting. Now, okay, so back into the the story then, so that we don't get caught up in Leviticus. The Israelites are on their way to this promised land. Tell us about the promised land. Well, we know it's a land flowing with milk and honey, and, and it's going to take them how long? And 40 years, right? Mm-hmm. 40 years. Everybody knows it takes 40 years. The question is, why does it take them 40 years? Uh, we, we, we pick up the story at the end of the book of Exodus, um, and we read that Moses finishes setting up the tabernacle where God is going to meet with his people, um, and the cloud of glory descended upon the, the tent of meeting. So those that have their Bibles out can look at Exodus chapter 40, verse 33 and following, 33 and 34. So cha- Exodus 40, verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And we pick up that, that very moment in the book of Numbers in chapter uh, 8, 9, and 10. Uh, and, and in fact, in chapter 9, verse 15, it says those very words, on the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of testimony. This is important because when you're, you're, your listeners are reading their Bible, they can go from Exodus 40 all the way to Numbers chapter 10, or chapter 9 and 10, and it's there in chapter 10 that we find out in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud was taken up over the tabernacle of, of testimony, and the people of Israel set out to the wilderness of Sinai. So, so look, they left uh, Egypt in the first year, on the first month, on the 14th day, and now we've entered into the second year, in the second month. So basically, they've, they've been now gone from Egypt for a full year, and now they set out on their journey to the Promised Land, and that journey is going to, as you said, is going to take 40 years. Why, Annie? If, if, well, that's what I was going to ask you. Why 40 years, Father? <laughs> in the book of, of Deuteronomy, in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 1, it says that it is an 11-day journey. 11 days from Mount Sinai, what's called there in Deuteronomy, Mount Horeb, to the Promised Land. Eleven days. But those eleven days will take forty years. Why? They do make that journey, actually, in eleven days. And in Numbers chapter 13, we find out the story of their investigation of the Holy Land. uh, Moses sends the leaders of the twelve tribes, twelve men, into the Promised Land to check it out. What's this land look like, and what's it going to be when we enter in? Are we going to have a war on our hands? They go in there, and they take the first fruits of the land, of the best fruits of the harvest, and they bring back these massive grapes, pomegranates, figs, and they come bearing all this fruit to the people. And the people say, well, let's go, let's go and take the land. In chapter 13 of Numbers, in chapter 14, but what happens? The, 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 the spies who go into the land give an evil report to the people. They come back having spent 40 days investigating that land which flows with milk and honey. 40 days they spy out the land. But when they come back, they say, we can't take the land. After we've crossed, we've gone through the Exodus, we left Egypt, and now we're here at the Promised Land. 
the people will kill us if we go in, and God will not protect us. And suddenly, we have our next massive crisis in Numbers chapter 14. The people say, let's turn back and go back to Egypt. But two men stand up, Caleb and Joshua, two of the leaders of the tribes of the people, only two out of the twelve stand up and say, we are with the Lord, the Lord is with us. We will certainly take this land because this land is ours as an inheritance, as we talked about before. But there's a crisis, and the people are divided. And suddenly they say, we will not trust the Lord, and we will not go into this land. It would be better if we had died in Egypt. And we can read those words there in Numbers chapter 14. And when they said that, they called down the condemnation upon themselves, and the Lord gave them the very thing that they asked for. For the 40 days they spent spying out the land, they will spend 40 years for every day a year until all of those faithless men die in the desert. And only Caleb and Joshua and the entire next generation of people who have faith in the Lord, who have gone through their their Lent, if you will, their 40 years in the desert, will then enter into the Promised Land. Well, on that happy note, Father, we'll leave it there and look forward to picking it up again next time. In the meantime, uh, where can listeners find your six-hour series on Salvation History? I encourage your listeners to go to instituteofcatholicculture.org, instituteofcatholicculture.org, over 800 hours of free Catholic education in the faith, uh, scripture study, philosophy, theology from the best teachers that we have available to us, all free of charge at instituteofcatholicculture.org. It's there that they can go to our library and look up swords and serpents, and they're going to have a six-hour introduction to salvation history. And you can find the Institute of Catholic Culture linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. That's S-O-N-RiseMorningShow.com. Thank you so much, Father Hezekiah. And I want to encourage you to head over to our website to connect with all of our guests on a daily basis. Click on the show notes for the day. And don't forget to click that subscribe button that you can find on the side of the page if you haven't done so already. Because when you subscribe, then you'll get the show notes linked in an email to you every single morning, just as the show is going on the air. SonriseMorningShow.com. Click subscribe. You're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell. We'll be right back. This past year has been a crazy roller coaster ride, but you have the power to get your business back on track by underwriting the Sunrise Morning Show. Weekday mornings, your message will reach millions of engaged Catholic listeners across the U.S. and around the globe who want to know more about and support Catholic businesses and organizations. To get national exposure for your business, ministry, or nonprofit on the Sunrise Morning Show, email me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. That's Leah at sacredheartradio.com. What does the church say about euthanasia? One meaning given to the word by its supporters is the intentional termination of life by another at the explicit request of the person who dies. That definition of euthanasia implies that the act must be initiated by the person who wishes to commit suicide. Yes, suicide. However, for many people, the definition of euthanasia includes both voluntary and involuntary termination of life. No one can justify taking the life of another. 
and no one can justify taking his own life. Those who support this atrocity call it mercy killing. Those who understand the value of life know there is no other word for it but murder. An elderly or infirmed relative might be seen by some as a burden on the entire family. But no one can choose to end that person's life. For more information, contact your local pastor or refer to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 2277, 2278, and 2324. For Sacred Heart Radio, this is Deacon Bill Mullaney. Joining us again on the Sunrise Morning Show is Father Sebastian Walsh. We've been going through his book, Always a Catholic, How to Keep Your Kids in the Faith for Life and Bring Them Back if They Have Strayed. Good morning, Father. Good morning, Andy. How are you? I am doing great. And we're going to be talking about not just keeping your kids in the faith for life, but actually fostering religious vocations in our children. Can you tell us, first of all, what is the essence of a vocation to the priesthood or consecrated life? Yeah, the essence of a vocation is to be set aside for God alone. That's the, the heart of it. And here, when we talk about a vocation, we mean in the strictest sense of the word. Sometimes the word vocation refers also to married life, and that's a, f- a fair use of the word. Um, but in some sense, marriage is natural to everyone, right? Everyone in some way is called to the married life because it proceeds just from the natural principles in human nature to be united with someone of the opposite sex to raise a family. But a vocation where you're called to separate yourself wholly to belong to God is something that's especially supernatural. And more than anything else, then, you're being called away from where you are. You know, the idea of a vocation is to be called. And it's a gift from God. You know, a lot of people think, oh, well, if I just do A, B, and C, well, then I'll have a vocation. Or if I do A, B, and C, then my children will all have a vocation. But the truth of the matter of vocation is a mystery, and it's a gift from God. It originates from the, the depths of the loving heart of Jesus. Absolutely. But this isn't like destiny, is it? I mean, God calls men and women to this life, certainly, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to say yes in order for God to bless them. That's exactly right. It's um, one of the most important things that I try to impress upon young men and young women when they're discerning vocation is that they are completely free before God. The, the commandments, like the Ten Commandments, those are things we're bound to do. We're, we sin if we violate the commandments. But the, the essence of religious life is found in observing the three evangelical counsels, poverty, chastity, and obedience. And a council is not something we're bound to do. It's something we can freely choose to do above and beyond the commandments. And, and God's not going to hold you accountable if you sinned. Even if he offers you a vocation and you say no to it, God is not going to treat you badly or as if you, you know, you've disappointed him or anything like that. There's a beautiful quote in my book that I, I quote from the diary of St. Faustina. And, um, and in there, she really describes exactly that, that attitude. She says, Jesus made known to me that even if I did not give my consent to this, I could still be saved, and he would not lessen his graces. 
but would still continue to have the same intimate relationship with me, so that even if I did not consent to make the sacrifice, God's generosity would not lessen thereby. And the Lord gave me to know that the whole mystery depended upon me, on my free consent. You see that? And that's in the the Diary of St. Faustine in uh, 135. So uh, no soul who's pondering a vocation should should pursue a vocation with a sense of guilt. I have to do this. The whole idea is to do this spontaneously, freely, out of love, not out of fear, not out of guilt. Yeah. And I don't want to take anything for granted here when it comes to those who are listening to our conversation right now, Father, because there are a lot of parents, very faithful parents, who have misgivings about children pursuing religious life for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. I mean, they might be justified or not. Um, So why do you think, why should a parent desire this for their children? Well, um, it ultimately comes down to this the same reason why a child should desire happiness for their children. <laughs> mm-hmm. That um, if this is what God is calling them to do, then that is the path. A vocation is like a path. It's not the destination. It's the means to the destination. And that vocation is the path that is most likely to lead to the greatest happiness for your child. And, and so if a parent really loves their child freely, not for their own sake, not so they can see them all the time. I mean, the biggest, of course, the biggest suffering for a parent comes when a child decides to enter a cloistered religious, you know, community where they never get to hug their child again and things like that. Those are very mm-hmm. painful realities. Yeah. But if a mother really loves her child for that child's sake, then, and a father too, then they'll be able to freely give them to the Lord and to remember, you know, I'll have all eternity to hug my children in heaven mm-hmm. and and to see the great glory and joy and happiness of my child in heaven because they followed their vocation freely. And then at the same time to see all the souls who would be saved that otherwise would not have been saved if my child had not pursued a religious or priestly vocation. Those are great goods, but you have to live by faith, not by sight. Okay, now I want to address parents like me who might have a bit of an overzealous desire to see one of her sons in the priesthood or uh, daughters in religious <laughs> yeah. life. How yeah. do parents like me keep from pushing their children into a religious vocation and allowing it to be desired by their children, pursued by their children, but not pushed into it? Yes, very good. So um, one thing to avoid our statements like this, I'll be so disappointed if one of my sons does not become a priest, or pray for my daughter because I really, really want her to be a nun, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Saying things like that are not going to be helpful because they put a ton of pressure on the kid, and if the kid doesn't have a vocation, then it puts them in a morally very difficult situation. They feel like they're going to be a failure in the sight of their parents. Mm. You should have the same attitude towards their vocation as God does where it's completely free, and, and you will be happy. You make sure you tell your children, I will be happy with either vocation. I just want you to follow God's will. But then, in the secret depths and recesses of your heart, you pray fervently that God will give that gift to your children, you know, without letting your children know that that's what you're praying for. Does that make sense? So they don't feel yeah. like, oh, mom's praying for this, I have to do it, you know. Absolutely. So just, 
but then also there is a way to create an atmosphere that can help children be more open to vocations, right? So can you talk about creating an atmosphere in the home that would would do that for a child? Yeah, absolutely. Um, First of all, it has to be a home filled with faith where um, the priesthood and religious life are, are center stage, where your kids see frequently the essence, the, the importance of what priests do, what sisters do, what religious do. Um, you know, you should um, have your family familiar with the priesthood and religious life. They should know who the priest is. If possible, help your family to, to know holy and faithful priests and religious, right? That way they can see consecrated life close up, not as some distant reality, right? In, in our case, we have hundreds of families that are nearby our abbey who come here frequently for Mass, for Sunday Mass, even for daily Mass. They interact with our priests and with the, 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 uh, the nuns that um, uh, live in Tehachapi and also at our, our parishes. And so we're in a situation where there's, there's so many young people and kids that are exposed constantly to religious life, and they see us as um, as people who make their family life better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so when they see that, when they see what a contribution the priest and religious life makes to the happiness of the Christian family, then they start to think, ah, oh, I think I'd like to do that too. I was just talking to a, the son of a friend of mine. He's got 12 kids, and this one son just unexpectedly, you know, just wanted to walk me to my car, and he just started to ask me about you know, so what's it like being a priest? And, you know, is it, I just see that you get to be so involved in so many families, and I really love that. You know, he started saying those things just without even any prompting on my part. And so those environments, the kids will naturally start to be drawn to them when they're given that gift. Well, Father, could you answer that question for all of our listeners? What is it like to be a priest for you? <laughs> well... You know, I'm, it's a long answer in many ways, but I'll say a few short things. Um, one, I think I would have been really happy as a husband and a father, a married man, but I am morally certain that I'm happier as a priest. Mm. Um, but that takes faith, really takes faith. I, I feel tremendous joy at the, um, the good I do for Christian families, but most of all, for me, offering the holy sacrifice of Mass. I tell people before I became a priest, I considered Jesus in the Eucharist to be my friend. But afterwards, he's like my Siamese twin. Mm. <laughs> and it's a beautiful thing. There's no way to explain it unless you've been there. <laughs> wow. Well, Father, I, I wonder if you could close the conversation talking to the children who are listening to the Sunrise Morning Show right now. How would you encourage them to pray to God? about their future? Yes. First of all, pursue your vocation not in fear but in love, right? I I tell people, come to the Lord with confidence that He's on your side, He wants to make you happy, and more than you want to make you happy. (laughs) And so you have to come to the Lord with an attitude of trust and say to the Lord, Lord, you know better than me what will make me truly happy. I give you permission to move in my life, to move in my soul, um, so that I will be happy according to your will. I'll be able to follow your will. And if you want me to follow the priesthood or religious life, I ask you, Lord, to give me that desire, 
not necessarily one that's a, an emotional thing, but a desire that, that keeps drawing my heart over and over again to a noble good of something that I, um, I peacefully and joyfully am willing to make that sacrifice. So just coming to the Lord with that trust and, and that um, docility where you just say to the Lord, I give my life into your hands. Beautifully put. We've been talking to Father Sebastian Walsh. The book is called Always a Catholic, and it's from Catholic Answers Press. You can find it at shop.catholic.com and linked at sunrisemorningshow.com as well in our show notes for the day. Father Sebastian, really appreciate the conversation today. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. God bless you, man. Thanks, Father. You too. You're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. It's 35 past the hour. Did you know that in addition to coffee, the Mystic Monks of Wyoming also sell tea? And with it being iced tea season, now's a great time to give it a try. Whether you're looking to buy tea or coffee, be sure to go first to sunrisemorningshow.com and click the Mystic Monk link before you buy, and we'll get a portion of your purchase price. And while you're at our site, check out our online store, where you can buy Sunrise Morning Show ceramic and travel mugs. Check out our store and link through to Mystic Monk Coffee at sonrisemorningshow.com. Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is abundant, but the laborers are few. So ask the master of the harvest to send out laborers for his harvest. We hear these days of a vocation crisis, and many people ask, Why is God not calling laborers to work in the vineyard as priests, deacons, and religious? The truth of the matter is that God has not stopped calling, but that there are so many voices contrary to his that his voice is often drowned out. Jesus invites us to pray. Ask the master of the harvest to send out laborers for his harvest. Many times we underestimate the power of prayer. Prayerful vocations should be a part of our daily prayers. Encouraging our youth to pursue a vocation to the priesthood, to the diaconate, and to their religious life is also a way of asking the master of the harvest to send laborers for his harvest. Our young people need our encouragement. They need to know that we care, that we realize the good in them. The Lord will not desert us. He will not abandon us. He will not leave us without shepherds for his flock, without laborers for his harvest. This is Bishop Roger Foyes of the Diocese of Covington. I encourage you to pray daily for vocations to the priesthood, the diaconate, and the religious life. God bless you. The Sunrise Morning Show continues, and we are honored to welcome back to the program Bishop Robert Barron. He's got a book with John Allen called To Light a Fire on the Earth, Proclaiming the Gospel in a Secular Age. Bishop Barron, welcome back to the show. It's always good to be on with you. Thanks for having me today. It's great to have you. Now, this book reads like a long-form journalism profile. There are extended quotes from you in it. And I understand that it was something, what, like 20 hours of conversation with John Allen to get this material? What kind of stuff did you cover? Oh, we covered everything. I mean, John came out to my house, and we spent, I think, about 25 hours in conversation in the course of, oh, maybe four uh, sessions. And um, it was intense, you know, a bit, <laughs> a bit like psychoanalysis, because John was asking me a lot of questions about myself, my background, and all that. And then we just covered a range of material, theology, the culture, evangelization, 
you know, the uh, theology, the nature of the church, all this stuff. And one thing I, I really wanted, and John did too, is that the book would read like a conversation, because what I objected to in some of the interview books that you see, it's very much like, you know, canned question followed by clearly premeditated, mm-hmm. you know, carefully written out answer, which is fine, but I, I wanted the book to read like, like it was, like a conversation. So it was certainly edited down and, you know, so forth and so forth. But um, I think it does have that kind of feel of two, two guys talking. Now, Bishop Aaron, what are your priorities when it comes to evangelization and why? Well, I would say the nuns, so the N-O-N-E-S, so this army of young people, especially young people, who are leaving the church in droves. And study after study have been telling us who they are, why they're leaving, and so on. That's my priority. I think we have to to, uh, solve the problem of the massive attrition of our own people, especially the young. So that's priority one for me. Well, in an age of relativism, Bishop, how do we even get people to accept that there really is truth at all, let alone the fact that the truth is Jesus Christ? Yeah, you go slowly. You know? So I think I think a first step, and one that I've tried to do now over the past many years, is invade their space. We cannot simply say, okay, let's, let's have a program at our parish, or let's have a, an event at our church and invite the young people to come. They're not coming. People are, are staying away from the churches in droves. So we got to move into their space, which I think today means the, the uh, Internet and the social media space. So the church has got to be present there, uh, commenting on the culture, uh, presenting itself in those uh, fora. Then the second thing that I've argued for a long time is I think we should begin with the beautiful. Mm. Um, as you suggest correctly, uh, today with our relativistic uh, attitudes, you start with the truth and, and the good, people tend to balk. Well, who are you to tell me what's true and what's good? But if you start with the third transcendental, the beautiful, you just show people, look, look at this. I, I think that's more winsome, especially for the young. And um, that could be the beauty of the Sistine Chapel, but also the beauty of, of Mother Teresa's um, sisters at work. Uh, it's the beauty of those who are, are working with the, with the poor, the Catholic workers, et cetera, et cetera. So I think begin with the beautiful, and the beautiful will lead people to the true and the good, but it's a little more winsome. Yeah, can you speak to the spiritual power of beauty? Yeah, because the, the beautiful, precisely as a transcendental, so like the good and the true, it's associated with being, wherever you find being. Therefore, it leads, if you let it, it'll lead ineluctably to the source of being, just as the true does and the good does. So if you follow the beautiful all the way, it'll open your mind and heart to the source of beauty. Uh, and now this tradition goes right back to Plato's Symposium. It comes up through Dante. You see it in James Joyce over and over again. It's the beautiful face, the beautiful person, the beautiful um, event, the beautiful natural uh, manifestation, you know, a sunset, the stars, can open the heart to the source of beauty. So that's the mystical uh, dimension of the beautiful. Bishop Barron, how have you seen your own personal ministry change now that you've been ordained a bishop? I don't know. In terms of this kind of work, evangelization, I would say not that much. I've continued doing what I've been doing for a long time. So my word on fire work. I think what's it's different more at the level of my region. It's what I felt when I was a a parish priest full-time, and I was uh, connected to those people, you know. I knew their 
sufferings. I knew their joys. I knew what was bugging people. I had just been to the funeral of someone's grandmother. I had visited someone's uh, kid in the hospital. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's that sense I was a bishop where I'm tied to this place in this diocese. Um, and that's, that's been a change. So for all those years as a, a teacher and then rector at the seminary, you know, I've got a certain preoccupation. But now this is a, it's a tie to the people in a new way. And I think that's, that's changed my, my whole attitude, my ministry. That's very interesting. So do you find that it has enhanced your ministry? Yeah. I think, well, one thing I've loved I, I, about being a bishop is it's, it's reawakened in some ways this more directly pastoral side. You know, mm-hmm. So when I was a young priest and I was in the parish, I was a deacon for a year in a very busy Chicago parish, and I was priest for uh, three years, also a very busy suburban parish. And, you know, pastoral life with all of its implications. But then I started my studies, got a doctorate, began teaching, then I was in the Word on Firework, and then administration as rector of the seminary. This job brings me right back into the the pastoral in a way that I've enjoyed very much. Well, John Allen has compared you to Bishop Fulton Sheen, and he's not the first to do so. So I'd like to know, Bishop Aaron, if you had a platform today that was comparable to this incredible platform that Fulton Sheen had, you know, a program on a major broadcast network back when there were really only a few channels to choose from. If you had that kind of opportunity for that sort of reach and platform today, what would you do with it? Well, I would probably do what he did, which is what I'm doing, too, on platforms that he would have given his right arm to have. You know, mm-hmm. so it's true that in his day, when there just were a handful of stations and he was on primetime, you know, that's, that's a huge, huge thing. But what we have today, where you can do something on, on social media, and it's 24-7 all over the world, uh, that's a reach that Fulton Sheen would have, would have died to have, you know. But I would say I would do exactly what I'm doing now, which is to uh, look at the culture through the lens of the gospel. Uh, begin with the culture, because people, again, they're, they're reactive to a direct proclamation of the gospel often. So look at the culture whether it's movies or it's politics or it's books or it's TV or whatever's happening, through the lens of the gospel, and then use that as a means to bring people to it. So I think I would do, you know, maybe on a grander scale what I'm doing now. Would you use a chalkboard? (laughs) Probably not, no. Although, (laughs) that's very much my speed, believe me. I mean, (laughs) I'm known as this, you know, media guy, and so, but I I rely on all these kids that work at Word on Fire to do all that for me. Uh, I'd be much more at home, trust me, with a chalkboard than I would with a PowerPoint presentation. That's awesome. Well, you and Word on Fire Ministries were were well-known prior to the Catholicism series, but I think we can all say that you certainly launched to, like, Catholic rock star status after the Catholicism series uh, came into being. But how do you envision this work going beyond just Bishop Barron, Catholic rock star? No, that's very much what I'm interested in. Um, I don't want to sound morbid, but, you know, as you get older, you just, you're more aware of your mortality. And um, I want Word on Fire to be more than just this ministry that I did for some years, and then I, I fade away, and, and it, it, it fades away. My dream is that it becomes something more like a movement within the Church. And actually, it's not my dream. It was a dream of, of the young people Word on Fire who approached me maybe 10 years ago now and said, you know, we're interested in not just working at this office. We want to be part of a, of a movement or an order. And I said, oh, okay, <laughs> that's interesting. Let's talk about that some more. 
So we did, and we then had a, we had a retreat day to talk about this whole idea, and it's evolved now over the years. But I'm, I'm ready to kind of launch Word on Fire to a new level, basically using our Internet outreach to draw people in as members of this movement dedicated to a lifestyle of evangelization. Um, we want to offer them specialized formation, specialized education, instruction, and to draw them into a, a form of life. I'd love to have Word on Fire um, centers all over the country where people can be trained and, and uh, formed as evangelizers. So anyway, that's what I'm dreaming about, and not just me, it's the whole Word on Fire family. Um, and there's a, a chapter toward the end of the book with John where I talk about that. Yeah, so if you want to become a true movement, a la Communion and Liberation or Focalare or Opus Dei, something along those lines, what is the specific spirituality of the Word on Fire movement in the Church, should it come to be? Yeah, broadly speaking, it's training people to have a lifestyle of evangelization. But then under that, we've got eight um, uh, principles, from Christocentrism to the use of the arts to what we call um, um, affirmative orthodoxy, that we emphasize what the Church is for before we talk about what it's against. Uh, we talk about the Eucharist as a central organizing principle. We talk about the role of the saints and our heavenly friends. I know I'm skipping some, but we have eight principles that govern the Word on Fire um, spirituality and way of life. So, Bishop Aaron, how would you like us, those of, you, those of us listening to your voice right now, how can we pray for this movement to be? Ask the Little Flower. I mean, she's been our great patroness. The Little Flower and Thomas Aquinas are the two great patrons, our heavenly friends of Word on Fire. But I, I'd ask the Little Flower. I mean, she's the one I go to whenever I want something. And, you know, with anything like this, we're talking about financial support, but also, you know, the, the, the people to come forward. Um, so ask her. Ask the Little Flower. We will certainly do so. St. Therese. Pray for us. We've been talking to Bishop Robert Barron from Word on Fire about the book with John Allen, To Light a Fire on the Earth, Proclaiming the Gospel in a Secular Age, which you can find at wordonfire.org. Bishop Barron, thank you so much for your time this morning. God bless you. Thank you so much. You too. You're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back. Support is from Solidarity HealthShare. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things that violate your beliefs? Have you ever felt there has to be a better way, but didn't know you had any options? If you answered yes, I've got some good news for you. There is a better way and a more affordable way. Solidarity HealthShare can save you hundreds of dollars each month while actually supporting your beliefs. Because the best news is that Solidarity HealthShare costs a whole lot less than insurance. It's time to jump in and put your money where your faith is and put some money back into your wallet at the same time. Join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based healthcare sharing community. Prices start as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save, 844-334-3245. That's 844-334-3245. Solidarity HealthShare, 844-334-3245. Waking up with Mystic Monk Coffee is definitely a better way to start your day. Not only are you getting a great cup of coffee, but your purchase helps support the life of the Carmelite Monks of Wyoming. 
and your purchase can also help our work. All you need to do is go first to sonricemorningshow.com. When you click the Mystic Monk link on the side of the page, we earn a commission. Support the monks and support the Sunrise Morning Show. Click the Mystic Monk link at sunrisemorningshow.com. That's sonricemorningshow.com. EWTN podcasts are the perfect companion for busy Catholics everywhere. Your favorite EWTN programs are waiting for you to listen to on your time. With on-demand access to audio, you can pause and pick up right where you left off, anytime, anywhere. Just subscribe by using your mobile device's free podcast app. Find old favorites or discover something new. EWTN Podcasts, they're waiting for you. I'm Matt Swain, joined now by Patty Armstrong, and she is the author of Holy Hacks. She also writes at the National Catholic Register. Good morning, Patty. Good morning, Matt. Well, how's this for a headline? Are Catholic websites leading you to sin? Uh, what in the world do you mean by that? Well, I've had a number of experiences where people have sent me articles, or I even commented on a site where somebody I know was really being ripped apart with incorrect information, and I was so surprised at the the nasty attacks, and um, I said, wait a minute, you know, the problem is these are put out there as Catholic websites, and I think we have to be careful and discern, and so I wrote an article about it. To, to, there's a lot of things that people may not look at, for instance, when you see, Matt, you can answer this, Matt, when you see somebody saying, we tried to reach them, but they said no comment. Do you think they're guilty? Isn't that the assumption? That's the assumption, right? Or uh, the other way I hear that is, well, so-and-so refuses to debate me in a public forum. Right. And a lot of times I know from personal experience, for instance, we'll just take this out of the, the religious realm, with workers' comp. A lot of times they'll say, well, they said no comment over a case. But what people don't realize is a lot of times a person who's complaining they didn't get fair treatment they did not. They they didn't sign a, a disclosure, so the agency cannot address it publicly. Only they can talk about it. So you know, a lot of times because of rules, especially within the church, um, if there's an ongoing investigation, sometimes it's not going to be commented on at that time, and we automatically assume guilt. And a lot of times, I'm seeing some supposedly Catholic websites piling on people over that. And the problem is that there is cynicism right now among all of us because there have been scandals, and I think things do need to be reported. But we have to be careful because I am seeing among some websites that promote themselves as Catholic just some real nastiness and not really journalistic reporting. Yeah, there's that. But there's also, we live in a world where allegation is equated with fact. So all you have to do is say, well, I bet that that's that's what's going on for people to say oh well that's what's going on uh, and, and that's not journalism that's speculation and it's well we can get into a lot of things there but what i what i find is sometimes patty it's not necessarily the content of something that is directed at you know catholics on the left or catholics on the right or against the bishops or against you know all these people in the church who don't really get it like i get it sometimes it's just the sheer quantity of information that you're taking in that can be a, an occasion of sin. I mean, you have to stay informed, but at a certain point, if you're just reading negative headline and after negative headline, even if they're true, you're creating a culture within your own soul. Right, and you have to make a choice. 
yes, be informed, but be careful. We seem to be attracted to negative information. Now, I'm somebody who used to write for the National Enquirer. (laughs) And so at the time, I, I left writing for them because I said, wait a minute, they really revel in gossip and bad information and tearing people down. And you're right. Just the accusation, people assume guilt, and we need to pull back from that and not just assume guilt and not delight in the downfall of somebody. And we should certainly be praying for that person and not just, you know, (laughs) dancing on their graves, you know. One of the uh, things that was most shocking to me and and convicting and and really made me question ever going into media was in a media ethics class when we talked about the photograph that you pair with the story or the image that you use with the video package that's being voiced over, communicates to the audience what you want to think about the person there. So let's say, for instance, it's a politician. Pick one. Or a bishop. Or even the Holy Father. Or whoever it is. If you picture them with awkward or dumb-looking facial expressions every time you put them in a story, even if you're reporting straight facts, you're predisposing people to think a certain way about that person. And that's so pervasive, and it's so insidious, and it's so subtle. And I've seen that. And and you see it all the time in the media. And that's a great point, is you'll find some dumb picture of them, and that's the one that you use. If if you want to portray them in a bad light and have people have a bad impression, so you make them look stupid. Um, but, you know, I have seen on, like, for instance, one website attacking people if they use their phone to follow along on the mass. And I thought, wait a minute. <laughs> So what? What difference does it make if your readings are coming on a piece of paper or you go to your phone to get the readings of the day and follow along at Mass? And there was so much negativity. And so that's one of the things I said, look at the comment section. Are people just nasty? And on this one particular website, when I said, wait a minute, you know, you're, you're passing gossip around, I was shocked at the way I was treated by other people that obviously frequent that website that just ripped me apart and called me names, and I said, I'm out of here. (laughs) And I did not pay attention to anything else that was said on that site in the comments section. All of this goes to removing nuance. So, for instance, I'm I'm not going to be using my phone to follow along at Mass, but I also realized they took all the missiles out of my church because of coronavirus. You know, it's a reminder, and I, I think I would encourage our listeners to check out your, your, your site because you go through this whole list uh, of ways to kind of evaluate how it is that we're, we're taking in even Catholic media. So if our listeners want to find that, remind us where to go. Go to ncregister.com, and the article is called Our Catholic Websites Leading You to Sin. ncregister.com, linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Thanks so much, Patty. Have a great day. Thanks, Matt. God bless you. That'll do it for this special edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. Thank you for listening. For Anna Mitchell and Paul Lockman, I'm Matt Swaim. May God bless you and keep you and grant you his peace.